All right, friends, Greg Kokel here. Thank you for being part of our show today. And uh, I want to um, launch out uh, actually by talking about two issues that dovetail uh, really nicely together. By the way, I should get the phone number. I almost never do that. So uh, maybe that's why I don't get as many calls as I might. And uh, frankly, I don't think people are listening live because it's not live radio anymore like it used to be for so many years. But it turns out we do have live listeners on the stream and the live stream. And so uh, when I've given the number, sometimes people have called in to chat with me, which is fine. Okay, normally people call in because they know I'm on the show from uh, 4 until 6 p.m. on Tuesday evenings, L.A. time. All right. Uh, But you can uh, the number is 855-243-9975, 855-243-9975. If you're outside the U.S., you can dial 562. That's the local area code where I'm broadcasting from in the Long Beach area. That's 562-424-8229. And you call in. Amy will chat with you a little bit. If you pass her muster, she'll put you through to me and we'll get to your calls, which is great. So just letting you know, I have a lot of open calls here, if uh, open mic calls rather, and you know how that works. They're recorded in advance. You guys call in and I have those to work with as well. But um, I wanted to talk about um, two things. One is a uh, piece that Alan Schliemann on our team um, has, uh, has written, and um, the title is, Should You Accommodate an LGBT Person's Requests? Okay, so this has to do with what is sometimes construed as a kindness or um, an affirmation. Maybe not that's too strong a word. It's a, a kindness or a, an act of love and consideration for a lifestyle that you may not agree with, but you still act in a way that is meant to show them kindness and love. At least that's the way they interpret it, and so this is why you act in a certain way. Now, Alan's going to sh- going to weigh in on that. In fact, this piece is so good, I'm just going to read it to you. But uh, our guys write things every single month, original pieces, and they go up on our website at str.org. And so you can stay informed on this. They're really good stuff, and you'll see this, the quality of this piece when I read it to you. But it's very good advice. It's advice, and now segueing over uh, to this other issue that I wish Amy Grant had heeded. Okay, now um, this may be old news in terms of this event, but um, in December, and I'm looking at an article written December 20th in Analysis, not even sure where that comes from, although my suspicion is it's left-leaning or sympathetic to leftist causes like homosexuality, LGBTQ, and all that, because of the way the piece is written, uh, applauding and congratulating Amy Grant in light of her willingness to host a same-sex wedding at her own farm, okay? And I just want to read some pieces of this, uh, and, and and I'm not trying to beat up on Amy Grant. I'm just trying to bring some issues to light and ask you to think about these things. And keep in mind, what I'm reading is a characterization from a writer, all right? There'll be some citations and quotes here. You can take them at face value, but um, what I read, apparently what has taken place, troubles me deeply. 
And what troubles me is the crumbling I don't want to say front now because that's too military. The the crumbling convictions that reflect faithfulness to Jesus of Nazareth who we claim to be following. Now, I give a talk regularly now as a result of my frustration with these kinds of things, and it's titled, Faithfulness is Not Theologically Complicated. And I deal with a number of issues that it seems like Christians' commitment to are crumbling, even though these are not gray areas in Scripture, and homosexuality is one of them. Or marriage is another. Okay? When Jesus was asked about marriage, he said, Have you not read, as the first words, that from the beginning he made them male and female? He starts with gender when he explains God's purpose for marriage. If we are followers of Jesus, why is it that we do not take those words seriously? Well, I, I know why Amy Grant didn't, because she, she, she camps on another verse, and I'll share it with you, and you can decide whether you think the way she's applying it is appropriate, okay? <clears throat> In any event, from the article, Amy Grant is hosting her niece's same-sex wedding on her farm, and Franklin Graham wants everyone to know he disapproves. So you can see already the writer is wagging his finger at Franklin. Of course, this should come as no surprise to Graham. In other words, Amy Grant's decision shouldn't be a surprise because of earlier things she said in a 2013 interview with the LGBTQ news outlet Pride Source, and nothing wrong with giving an interview, Grant said she knew by the time she was 18 that she had a gay fan base. Oh, okay, fine. Quote, so this is a quote from Amy Grant, even when I was discovering my own sexuality, those are her words, that just strikes me as odd way of putting it, doesn't it? Do you see how it kind of, I don't know, it sounds to me like she's relativizing her own her own sexual experience. I discovered that I, uh, now I'm putting words here, but I think this is implicit. Maybe not. I would never speak this way because it's too confusing. Even when I was discovering my own, even when I was realizing that in my own subjective sexual experience, I was migrating towards a heterosexual attraction. My own sexuality. Maybe that's not what she meant. Continuing, and meeting people that had a different experience. Now, that seems to nail it down. Different people have different experiences. Who's to say? That's kind of the way it seems to me. She says, I didn't categorize them, and I don't categorize right now. In other words, she doesn't say one experience is right and the other experience is wrong. Am I reading into this? Even when I was discovering my own sexuality and meeting people that had a different experience, I didn't categorize then, and I don't categorize right now. It makes me realize I don't have any idea of what it would feel like every moment of my life to go somewhere and feel judged. Well, the issue isn't how people feel. The issue is what God says is right and good. Now, if we're clear on that, then we have to ask, what is the appropriate virtuous way to engage people who are living in such a way that we don't think is right or good according to God's plan? That's a different issue. 
and I think grace and kindness and and congeniality and all of those things are appropriate because we don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. But at the same time, we don't pretend or talk as if there is no moral significance between these. And that's, I think, the way she's talking here. Now, this is 2013. Okay, so let's fast forward here in the article that uh, Grant gave an interview to the Washington Post. I guess it was not too long ago. I guess she received a... uh, Oh, this month, Grant became the first contemporary Christian music artist recognized for a lifetime artistic achievement. All right. And just a month before the gala, so this is late last year, Grant gave an interview last year, this 10 years later than what I just read a moment ago. Grant gave an interview to the Washington Post where she discussed the upcoming wedding on her farm. A decade after her cautious interview, that's the one I just read a moment ago, in support of LGBTQ persons, okay, that should be qualified. You can support the person by being gracious and loving toward the person without affirming the behavior, right? But of course, that's not the way this person is reading it, and that's not actually the way I read it. Her comments 10 years prior, they were equivocal. Well, you know, some people have this experience, some of that experience, and I'm not judging. I'm not saying which is right is which is wrong. Okay. A decade, continuing here now, a decade after her cautious interview in support of the LGBTQ person, she came out in full support of the thing evangelical Christians fear the most, same-sex marriage. Well, I don't fear same-sex marriage. Uh, nobody I know is fear it, fears it. Like, we're, we're same-sex marriage-phobic. We think it's not right, and there are problems with it, whatever. But I continue. The Post reported, quote, in recent years, this is the Post article that is, Washington Post article that is being cited here. In recent years, she, Amy Grant, has voiced support for the LGBTQ community, where she has had a large fan base for decades. We already learned that. Now she talks about her and Gil's plans to host her niece's wedding at their farm, which is her family's first bride and bride nuptials. Grant recalls her reaction when she learned her niece had come out. Okay, now this is in not in quotes, but it's in italics. I'm not sure exactly how to take it. This may be a characterization of something Grant says, but here's the italicized portion. Her reaction when she learned her niece had come out. What a gift to our whole family to just widen the experience of our whole family. What a gift. What if Amy Grant's parents stayed married but both have adulterous relationships with others that they announced publicly? Would Amy Grant say, what a gift to our whole family to widen the experience of our family? Just think about that, okay? And then she told the Post, honestly, from a faith perspective, I do always say, Jesus, you just narrowed it down to two things, love God and love each other. I mean, hey, that's pretty simple. Okay, there it is. Now, there's her text. That's the text she's living by. Love God and love each other. Okay, this is really important. Amy, she can do whatever she wants. That's her own choices. But I want you to understand 
that loving God and loving others has theological substance to it. It is not just a vague old bromide that's tossed out. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? Paul said, Love, in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Now, it is absolutely, unequivocally clear that sexual sin is unrighteous, all of it. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, that's the four that are proscribed by Scripture, all having sex with someone other than your heterosexual mate for life, wife or husband. So therefore, all of those things characterize unrighteousness according to God. It, it, that's straightforward. Why is that hard? If love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, then and and a same-sex marriage reflects not just unrighteous unions, but a celebration of that. How can you celebrate unrighteousness by hosting it that event at your home and call it love? Friends, this is not rocket science. This isn't high theology. Faithfulness is not theologically complicated. It is culturally complicated. It is difficult not to give in to the mob when the mob is all around you and throwing accolades at you all the time. It is difficult to say, no, here's where I draw the line. That line for her should have been drawn 10 years ago. Quote that I read from 10 years ago, she didn't draw it there. And like I said, my goal is not to harangue on Amy. I'm just using this as a contemporary example of something terribly wrong with Christians in the church that are celebrating in one fashion or another a worldly behavior that God said is terribly wrong. Now, um, Franklin Graham did respond He said, yeah, we're to love God and love our neighbors, but if we love God, we're supposed to obey Him. (laughs) Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, Graham notes. Yes, and God defines what sin is. Okay, I don't need to say any more about Amy Grant and about this abuse of the two great commandments, which have no moral substance, apparently, to Amy Grant and to a whole host of other Christians who are going along with it, all right? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Now, with that predicate being laid, and it was a long one, I I grant you that, I want to read Alan Schliemann's short piece. When I say short, it's probably about 800 words. One page, both sides, okay? And we all do these, like I said, Alan, Tim, John, Robbie, and me on alternating months because of solid ground. And this is on our website, should you accommodate an LGBT person's request. So this is speaking directly to the kind of circumstance that Amy Grant faced and many other Christians are facing, and Alan's giving his wisdom. Here's what he says. Christians are routinely pressured to compromise their convictions. Sadly, 
it's other Christians who leverage a good faith principle to achieve an unfair end. I want to encourage you, though, if you're feeling pressured to accommodate a request from an LGBT person that violates your conscience, know that there's a line you do not have to cross. Now, of course, the problem here is, it's not with Alan's writing, it's a qualification. You're asked to cross a line that violates your conscience, and for many Christians, this this is a line that doesn't violate their conscience. That's part of the problem I'm pointing to. He continues, one of the principles I've taught for nearly two decades is that we ought to maintain our relationship with friends and family who identify as LGBT. It's wrong to end a relationship or distance yourself from someone merely because they identify as LGBT, which would be true about any other sin. Just like Paul kind of intimates in 1 Corinthians 5, we don't judge people outside of the church. We don't separate ourselves from those people outside of the church. We have to go out of the world, and it's the world that we're meant to go into to bring light into the darkness. And Alan's just reflecting that same ethic here. Okay. After all, I've argued, he writes, relationships connecting connect people like a bridge by which you communicate love, show compassion, or share the gospel. Therefore, I've argued, you should lean into your relationships with a friend or family member who identifies as LGBT. <clears throat> Lately, I'm seeing this principle misused, although not always intentionally. Christians are being told that they should never jeopardize their relationship with a friend or family member who identifies as LGBT if they're asked to affirm or accommodate something that violates their conscience, they're told to go along anyway because they must, quote, maintain the relationship, close quote. That's a problem, Ellen writes. Yes, we should strive to maintain the relationship as best we can. There's a limit, though. If you must violate your conscience to accommodate another person's preferences or opposing values, then it's reasonable to decline. Actually, I think he could have said it more strongly. We're obliged to decline. Anyway, tell them, he writes, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I care about you, but you're asking me to deny my own values and convictions. Now, he says, might that cause your relationships to suffer or end, possibly? Although that's not ideal, it's still okay. You can only go so far to accommodate other people's values or worldview. Many Christians, however, get gut-guilted into violating their conscience because maintaining their relationship has been elevated to an unreasonably high priority. This forces them to reluctantly participate in social rituals, making them feel supportive of ideals they know are harmful. Okay, let that sink in. Virtually everybody that I'm reading to right now is 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 has either faced is facing or will face this circumstance <clears throat> many christians alan continues however um i'm sorry for example he writes christians are pressured to use a transgender person's preferred pronouns even though many are uncomfortable with doing so it's said to be a benign yet simple act of love to practice what they call pronoun hospitality. The left just comes up with these clever phrases, don't they? Pronoun hospitality. 
<laughs> not not pronoun bullying, which is what it amounts to, but pronoun hospitality. They're told that using the incorrect pronoun will damage their relationship, so they feel they're held hostage. Failure to go along with this request will destroy the relationship, so they must comply. Let's grant for the sake of argument, Ellen says, that declining to use preferred pronouns would damage a relationship with a transgender friend or family member, though I know it doesn't always have that effect. I still think it's appropriate to decline to use preferred pronouns if you've reasons it's wrong and doing so would violate your conscience, even though the relationship will suffer, and that's not ideal, your decision is still appropriate. Now, as Rosaria, did I say it right? I got it right. Rosaria Butterfield has recently posted a uh, a mea culpa, and uh, Amy's going to probably you know, put it on the show notes here, um, because coming out of a gay lifestyle herself, becoming a very committed Christian and writing about these things quite candidly, uh, she used preferred pronouns um, for a while, and I think even wrote in favor of it, and then had a change of heart about it as she reflected on the moral consequences of doing that. Now she says, absolutely not, that is sin before God. That's her view. And I I just encourage you to read that because she argues well regarding that issue. And, um, you know, I think those who may not be sure about the propriety of not using preferred pronouns would do well to to consider her thinking, her argument. Uh, But I continue. um, Here's why you... Here's why he says that the decision, even though it damages a relationship, your decision not to use preferred pronouns is still appropriate. You shouldn't make maintaining the relationship the highest goal. It is important, and we should strive to nurture healthy, lasting relationships as best we can. He cites here Romans 12 and verse 18. That pursuit, though, should not trump your fidelity to other important aspects of your life fidelity to biblical values. That's his line. Mine is, faithfulness is not theologically complicated. All right? Fidelity also, he writes, to reality, and fidelity to what you think is right. It's unhealthy to deny those components of your life just so a relationship doesn't suffer. So, Alan's point, do the right thing before God. If the relationship suffers, and it may not, well, that's where you draw the line, because the relationship is not more important than faithfulness to God. All right. Uh, Almost done here. It's one thing to deny your preference for the sake of others. You may not like mushrooms, but you go along with your friend's insistence on putting them on a pizza. You might not like science fiction films or hiking in the desert, but these are preferences that don't have a moral quality to them. It's an entirely different thing to deny your own values and convictions. Even if you compromise your convictions and use your friend's preferred pronouns, will that be enough? This is a pragmatic concern now. Is it sufficient to practice pronoun hospitality even when you don't believe they're the opposite sex? Or would a transgender friend or family member also demand your sincerity? Okay, so it's one thing to just say it and not believe it. But wait a minute, is that going to satisfy them? Maybe they want you 
They aren't happy if you just say it. You have to believe it. Alan says, if you accommodate that, then what's next? When will they be satisfied with you? As long as you don't accept transgender ideology wholesale, you will always be at odds with their values and worldview. You can never do enough. Therefore, what's the point of appeasing them? All it does is compromise your own convictions to uphold a false ideology you know is dangerous and damaging to them and others. Besides, pronoun hospitality is anything but hospitable. Why? It's insincere. When you use preferred pronouns, you're saying something with your words, that they're a different sex, that you don't believe with in your heart. Would they genuinely want that from you? It's patronizing. If the roles were reversed, I would never expect a non-Christian friend to be insincere simply to appease me. If I invited them to my child's baptism, but they were opposed to Christianity, I wouldn't expect them to pay lip service to a theological truth they don't believe. I wouldn't demand they attend the ceremony against their convictions, or else I'd end our relationship. No, there's no moral principle that elevates relationships to a point where they trump your deeply held beliefs. Therefore, there's no duty to accommodate every request made by a friend or a family member who identifies as LGBT. The same would be true of relationship with non-LGBT people. Do your best to love your friends and family and honor those relationships as best you can. Remember, though, that fidelity to God and your convictions is also important. Well done, Alan. Available at str.org. And back to Amy just for a moment. The two great commandments are love God and love your neighbor. But love God is the first one. You do not love your neighbor at the expense of loving God through obedience to him and reflecting his truth clearly to the world. If you do, you are no longer a light to the world. You have put a lampshade on. You are blocking the light. Speak the truth with love, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus, John chapter 1, and that's Alan. That's what Alan's saying. He has always held this, full of grace and truth. We don't compromise truth, though we live out grace to the people to whom we speak the truth without compromising especially a truth that's so critically important and is destroying people's and, and the the um not the truth but the denial of the truth is destroying people's lives all right let's take a break and then we'll get to your calls here on standard reason hey friends would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge wisdom and character Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Some Christians and many former Christians are promoting a trendy approach to doubting and questioning your faith called deconstruction. Is it the same as reforming your faith? Well, it turns out there's one key element that distinguishes between the two. 
Find out what that is in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. All right, guys, some things happening here coming up this week. I've mentioned them in the past. I want to just let you know, because when our guys are, our team is out and about, I want you to know where they're going to be at. You can show up. Robbie Lashua is going to be at the Imperial Valley Apologetics Conference in El Centro. That would be south of San Diego. And it's hard, hard to get too far south without getting into Mexico. But El Centro is like right like five miles from the border, but this is where the event's going to be, Southern California, and uh, Robbie's going to be part of that event. That's on Saturday, May 20, okay, in, a, in like two weeks or so. And Tim Barnett, on the same day, Saturday, May 20, will be in Lubbock, Texas, at the Unapologetic Conference there. Amy Hall is going to be doing a workshop on Scripture memorization, the women in apologetics conference. That's WIA, is that right? Is that what they call it? women in apologetics conference, um, uh, do they like like check IDs so no guys can come, or how does that work? I, no guys show up. Okay, that's good. Single guys, and just just checking. Anyway, June ten, it's all women speakers, but guys can come. Amy just told me uh, June nine and ten in Anaheim. Okay, and that was the 10th is my birthday, 73 on that date. And the theme of the uh, conference is orthodoxy. And you can uh, learn more at womeninapologetics.com slash 2023-W-I-A-C-O-N-F, like Women in Apologetics Conference. Uh, you can get all this information, by the way, at uh, str.org slash events, where we're all at, and uh, I'm I'm going to be rusticating a little bit and relaxing and hopefully spending some time in the boat. You know, that's the jerk on one end of the rod that's waiting for a jerk on the other end of the rod. Yeah, that's what I'll be doing with my brother for a bit, and it's uh, long overdue. So anyway, those are the things coming up. Uh, just to let you know also that um, applications are still open right now. For Standard Reason Outpost Directors, we actually have 75 outposts now. We started with the first ones in September we got last year, and we got 75 now. Robbie Lashua is doing a, just a knockdown, bang-up job. I guess knockdown, bang-up doesn't sound like a good thing, but I mean it in the most Christian way possible. <laughs> He's doing great. And uh, looking for more 
outpost directors, but remember, STR outposts are local communities of Christians that are seeking answers to hard questions. They're kindred spirits gathering together in the local church to encourage each other and also be a resource to others in the local church. And they each have directors, so we need somebody to lead the process. We provide standard reason materials and kind of a protocol for you to follow. It's it's all there, and if you want information on that, you can go to str.org slash outposts. Okay, and uh, and then you can get all the skinny there. All right, with that done, let's go to our first caller in Michigan. His name is Tanner. Hello, Tanner. Hi, Greg. How are you? Oh, wait a minute. I think I pushed the wrong button. Nevertheless, okay, I got you. Was I supposed yeah, to? I see, yeah, no. I'm looking at Amy. What's I, I'm seeing the wrong thing here. Okay, so go ahead, Tanner. You're on board. Thank you for calling. All right, Greg. So here's my question. Something I've been pondering over for quite a while. Um, if God's omnipresent, uh, he's aware of, you know, the past, the future. And if he was aware of all the people who would suffer, you know, all the children who would starve, pre-creation, right. he did, still decided to go ahead and create. Does that make him an evil God, or does that make him responsible for all the suffering? Well, um, there are two questions there. Is he responsible for all the suffering? And is he an evil God? Okay, um, because from time immemorial, God always knew what would be the consequence of his action. Okay, now I um, I talk about this in the story of reality, and this does raise the question. I mean, the general question of. Um, evil in the world. How can a good God allow evil in the world? I mean, your your particular question is, is just a variation of that, all right? Right. And does that not make God culpable, okay? So here's the twist. The twist is, um, let me back up and just give an illustration. Do you have children? I don't. Oh, okay. I do, okay? So I'll use me as an example. I have kids, now they're 18 and 14, but uh, when they were young, I took them to the doctor, so they got shots. My kids didn't like shots. What kid does? You know, here comes the needle, boink, ah, you know, like that. We don't like that. Daddy, why are you doing this evil thing to me, okay, causing me this pain? And the reason I am allowing them to feel uh, pain is because I have a, a purpose in mind for it, and the purpose represents a greater good than the pain they're suffering. Okay? So, the principle here is that um, God could allow something that he knows is going to happen that in a limited sense is evil, and in itself is evil, if there is a greater good that he sees will come out of it, okay? okay? If there is a greater good that comes out of it, or the action diminishes some other evil in a way that's com- that, that is, justifies this particular instance, then God's not evil for doing it. So now this is just formal categories that I'm offering, because a lot of times people are going to say, well, then tell me what the greater good is. And the answer is, I don't know entirely. I mean, I can't tell you the greater good that is going to come out of any instance of evil 
that happens to any individual. And the reason I can't tell you that is because I'm not God and I don't know what his purposes are. Sometimes the good might happen way down the line, the greater good. Now, uh, I, I do have some illustrations, and many times, even in our own lives, especially as Christians, we can see this taking place. But the the illustration is a historical one. It's about Quantos. Do you know who Quanto is? I don't. Well, Quanto was a, a, a Native American. Is that I get it right? Oh, Squanto. <laughs> Quanto was Quanto was was I mean Quanto was Squanto's mathematically inclined brother. That's why they call him Quanto. Okay, it's Squanto. Thank you, Amy. She's looking at me with a blank look. Amy, you don't know who Quanto is? No, it's not Quanto. It's Squanto. Okay, Squanto. Okay, Squanto <laughs> is a, was a Native American. Uh, during the time of the Mayflower complex, the, the 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 Pilgrims landing and et cetera, et cetera. But what had happened with Squanto is Squanto had been kidnapped uh, by uh, some other U- European Spaniards, I think, and they took him back to Spain. Okay, he ended up being adopted by some Franciscan monks or something like that, and then he ended up becoming a Christian, and then they took him to England uh, as a way to try to get him back to his homeland, and so he learned English, all right? Now, as it turned out, no, those are all terrible things. The guy gets kidnapped, then he's taken as a slave to another country, leaves his whole family. It turns out, though, that his whole tribe that he left ended up dying every single person due to a plague. They were gone. Squanto was the only one who survived because he wasn't there when they got the plague. When he's repatriated to his area, now he's he's been attached to another tribe around the time that the Mayflower lands. And the Europeans don't know how to farm. They don't know how to take care of things. They're dying. And this Native American walks into their camp and greets them in English and then is able to instruct them um, in the, the, the in what they need to survive that first winter and get crops and whatever. And he tells them all about these things, right? Okay, so here's an instance where the bad thing that happened is he got kidnapped. But the result of him being kidnapped is he didn't die of the plague. But even better, when he's returned after this terrible experience of being kidnapped, but he then becomes a Christian, and then he becomes uh, becomes learns English. When he is repatriated, he's able to help the American settlers survive. So you can see in the sovereignty of God allowing a bad thing in order to accomplish a greater good. Do you see the equation there? I do. Okay. And, um, now that's an historical example. The the only other thing I was going to say is I any Christian who has walked very long with God will be able to look back in their life and see things that happened that were not good. They were painful, they were difficult, they were awful, they were tragic. And it befuddled them at the time. But now, with historical perspective, they can see how God used that for some greater good in their lives. And I, I even know, for example, of a woman who lost her husband tragically in an accident as a Christian. 
And it was a miserable, obviously, a miserable experience to, to her. But she says now, God used this to do such a great thing in my life, though I love my husband and I miss him. I am better off now than I was then. I wow. wouldn't want it to happen again, but I can see that what the good that God did that justified the decision that he made. Okay, so that's, you know, every Christian has has a testimony like that, maybe not to that extreme. And so what this is meant to show is that God can allow a bad thing for, and it's justifiable if he has a morally sufficient reason to do it. That is, maybe some greater good is going to come out of it. And so looking in eternity now, God knew when he created man that all these bad things were going to happen and human beings were going to be judged for the badness that he knew would happen. But he also saw something else. He saw a greater good that he would accomplish as a result. And that greater good is greater than the bad that he knew was going to happen. And therefore, God is not the author of the evil that people chose to do, and he is not guilty of evil for allowing them to choose the evil because he made a greater good out of that. So, Greg, the, the thing that sticks with me that maybe it doesn't matter, but to me it feels like it does. Um, I agree with everything you said, and I've, I've done a bunch of research and, and gone through a bunch of the stuff you just said, um, but it comes down to pre- and post-creation. I mean, everything you just said um, applies to us, and I feel like the logic we've applied to explaining the evil in our lives uh, post-creation Um but if God had the foreknowledge um, of all the suffering and all the evil pre-creation, why didn't he just not create? You know, that's that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and again, maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe the argument um, takes care of both sides of that, but I don't know. Well, the, the, the date or the event of creation is not relevant to an omniscient being. It always was the case that God knew everything that was going to take place. He didn't learn about the fall of man after he created, and then he goes, oh, now what? He knew that was going to happen, and you pointed that out earlier. He's omniscient. Um, uh, Foreknowledge, uh, sometimes people use that as omniscience, but it's also in Scripture used as a synonym for election. So that's why I don't use that word, because it can be confusing. So he... He um, he certainly, in his omniscience, knew this was all going to happen, and probably the simplest way that I could put it is he he also knew that it would be worth the risk. It's a way of putting it. Now, it was no risk to God, because he knew the good that would eventuate from it, just as he knew the bad that would be the result of his creation. And since the good—and, well, let me put it this way— if the good is greater than the bad, then God's decision to create was morally justified. And all we have to do is show, in this case, a possibility. We don't have to show, well, what are all the good things? I don't know. But the claim is, if God knew the bad was going to happen, then he is evil and morally responsible for the bad that happened. And my point is, not necessarily so. If there is, a, and we know from our own experience, just like with kids, we are we are willing to suffer a short-term evil for a long-term good. Think of D-Day, June 6, 1944. 
There were 30,000 civilians that died on on the D-Day invasion. 30,000 civilians that died as a result of the D-Day invasion. Okay, that's a lot of innocent people that died. How could that be justified? Because the greater good was freeing all of Europe, which eventually happened. And so the short-term bad is justified because of the greater good, at least was in view with the invasion. Fortunately, it succeeded. In God's case, though, he's not a guess. He knows. And as long as that equation is a plausible equation, given God's omniscience about all aspects of the future, then God is not necessarily morally culpable for creating a world that would eventually go bad in some ways. That makes sense. It's not always satisfying when the <laughs> the evil hits you personally or any of us personally. I understand that. I get it. Uh, but um, uh, I think that's the, the, what I described is the appropriate way of kind of looking at the whole thing. And, and I'm, I've mentioned this before. Maybe I said it last hour. I don't know. But there's a phrase I use a lot for myself before the Lord, and the phrase is, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. I said it yesterday as I'm walking to my shop. I was building a fishing pole in my shop. My (laughs) comment had nothing to do with my fishing pole, but it had something I was pondering that had befallen me that I was not happy with. Now what? Well, I could shake my fist at God. I could do that. That's not going to help anybody. Or I could acknowledge the sovereignty of God in my circumstance. Lord, you know. I don't know, but you do. And we know, I'll tell you what we do know, <clears throat> that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, there's your foreknowledge word applied to election, those, who, those whom he foreknew. The people he foreknew, not the choices he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Okay, so I know that no matter what befalls me as an individual, and so the principle has broader application to your concern, but for me as an individual, boy, I don't get it, but I know that God has promised something. I don't don't see all the whole picture, but I can say, okay, I just let this go, Lord. I'm entrusting it to you. You know, Lord you know and that and that helps me to deal with it and so it has it does have application in a broad sense to this larger in a sense philosophical or theological conundrum the problem of evil etc but it has very practical application to our personal lives because in the most difficult things we face we can still say okay lord you know you're a good god you know i don't know but you do and that's what i do that helps me and help you tanner that does. That does. Thank you, Greg. All right. All the best to you, brother. Hey, you got time for one more question real quick? Um, I got another caller, but I'm just looking at I got, I got, hold on just a minute. Um, well, I just want to use up. I don't want to give uh, Brandon the short, a short shrift. So what? <laughs> yeah, but I got 10 more minutes right now. I can take, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, Brandon, you're on, and I should have pushed your button first, but I didn't, but I'll take you right at the top of next hour, and I'll take the next 10 minutes and finish up with you, Tanner, and then I get you both in. Okay, so go ahead, Tanner. Your other question. With what you were just talking about earlier in the podcast about the pronouns, um, 
So I'm a school teacher, and we're being told that we have to use pronouns, but something I refuse to do. What do you say to a, to a school teacher um, in that situation? How how do I handle that? How do I um, go up against my administration in that? Yes. Okay. So I have some suggestions, but it's difficult to apply. And the reason it's difficult to apply is because there may be a price for saying no. There shouldn't be a price, but now they are exacting a price, and you have to decide what you're going to do, okay? Now, I actually have um, here a piece that Amy wrote that reflects um, advice that I gave to someone else who raised the same question, and they applied it in their life, wrote a piece to his employers, because this wasn't a school district, but it was employers, so it's not government, it's private, but the same issue, okay? And, and what, what, I, what I suggest, the way I encourage people, is to, is to ask, why is this required? Why am I required to violate my conscience on this issue? Or maybe ask the question, do you think people should live authentic lives? consistent with it. Now, of course, that's what they think, which is why they they want to promote transgenderism, because that's authentic to the transgender person. Great. Can I be authentic, too? Am I allowed to be authentic to my own convictions? All right. Do you want me to lie? These are questions. I'm just giving it to you real quickly here, the kinds of things right. I would say. If I don't believe in this, then you're asking me to go against my strongly held convictions. Why are you asking me to do that? Why are you forcing your politics on me? Now, they're going to say, well, it's because it's being nice. Well, wait a minute, it's not being nice to me, because you're threatening me now if I don't do what you say. You can be nice to the transgendered person. You do not, re you don't talk to a, a transgendered person with pronouns. You don't say, hey, you, hey, him, hey, her. You're referring to the transgendered person in the third person when you use pronouns. You're talking to somebody else about them. Okay, you can do a workaround and just always use their first name or their last name if you want to without using the pronouns. But this is a political move, and it's all politics, and it's bullying. Okay, now what I'm going to do is read to you what this person wrote to their employers uh, he said, uh, I recently spoke to Stand a Reason supporter who received a—oh, um, this is Amy's writing, but referring to the practical application—who <clears throat> received a company-wide email saying leaders were expected to display their pronouns. So this is a little different, but it's the same category. After considering the cost and thinking carefully through this response, his, this is what he told his employer. So now this is what the person in your circumstance wrote to his employers. I appreciate the goal— of mutual respect and creating a welcoming environment for everyone. My desire is to be respectful of everyone. The expectation to display my pronouns, and, and in your case, um, uh, Tanner, you can say the expectation to use pronouns contrary to my own personal convictions, okay? Uh, the expectation to display my pronoun asks me to accept a premise I cannot accept namely that my pronouns could be different than he, him, because he's a male. It's an, it's a, he writes, it's an ontological claim about the nature of reality. You can leave the ontological part out and just speak regular English, but it's a claim about reality. And I hold a different view. 
I'm not asking those that are transgender to accept my view of reality, but I am being asked, but I'm being asked to accept theirs. And so this is part of the strategy I suggest for you, Tanner. Um, I am not trying to change any other person's view about anything. I'm not asking the administrators to change their view. I'm not asking the transgender to change their view. All I'm asking is to be allowed to have my own view. That's what you're asking. Of course, they don't want to do that. They want to bully you. Okay, right. the last thing he puts is, I can live, this is the piece that this man wrote to his boss, I can live and work with respect toward anyone's, um, anyone with different beliefs than my own, including my transgender co-workers. Can I be respected in my beliefs that differ on the nature of gender and identity while affirming the dignity of every person? That is a key question. Can I be respected? I'll show the dignity and respect to everybody. But can I be respected? Now, what they're going to do, and this is what's happening here, is they are defining dignity and respect as affirming the other belief. But now you're affirming a belief you don't hold. And just like Alan said in the piece that he wrote, is that going to make you happy for me to lie? Do you want me to lie to people? Because I'd be affirming a belief I don't hold. Now, I, I, apparently, this received um, a good response. Amy, is, 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 Amy, is this posted? Oh, she'll tell me later. She's on the phone. Um, she writes, "I thought this was such a good response, hitting key points. One, request is not the request is not neutral. Two, the request is contrary to his beliefs." And three, mutual respect requires neither party be forced to affirm something they don't affirm. And four, uh, affirming the dignity of every human being, regardless of their beliefs on this topic, and will treat all with respect. Those are the four things that are resident in this response that I think are really, really important. Okay, so my encouragement is that you, as you tell your, your whoever your administrators or your bosses are, and ask them why are you being forced. And I don't know what the punishment will be. You lose your job. Okay, you want me to be nice to them by using their preferred pronouns, and if I don't, you're not going to you're going to fire me. Really? So I mean, do you see how unbalanced this is? This is why people have to say no, because these are bullies, and bullies don't stop until you, and metaphorically speaking here, knock them down. That's the only way to stop a bully. And, and uh, now, once again, advice is cheap. I can tell you my view. It doesn't cost me. It costs you. But I think this piece that Amy wrote, is this online, Amy? This... Okay, this piece that I just cited will be online on Wednesday, that's tomorrow, and um, when this piece comes out, this podcast comes out, and so you can uh, look at her piece and then maybe use that to remind you of our conversation and look at uh, your circumstances, see how you can adapt that to those circumstances. But this is politics. That's all it is, and it's bullying. They are demanding that you act like their political views are true, even if you don't believe them. And it has nothing to do with being nice, because they're not being nice to you. They're going to punish you and other people a lot worse than, than <laughs> they think the transgender person is being punished. 
when somebody in a third person doesn't refer to them with the proper genders. I, I mean, it's just, it's so unbalanced. Okay. Why are they doing this? Because they're enforcing a narrative and the narrative is a specific view of reality that is false. And that's what you're contending for. So if you have this conversation, Tanner, um, I suggest you be gracious and nice, point out what's going on here and, and to, and hold, hold the line on what's true. Because what's the next thing? As Alan said, what are they going to demand next? What other thing are you going to force me to affirm in order to keep my job and make a living? You know, and they will not stop here. Because this itself is a big step off of other things. Every time it's another step until they can totally control what everybody says according to their narrative. All right. Oh, there's my music, so I'm out now, Tanner. Okay, thank you. Yes, yeah, you're so welcome, and I'm glad that you I had an opportunity to speak to this issue and read Amy's piece coming out tomorrow at str.org. And uh, this wonderful response this other person sent to his own employer, and with good result from what I understand. So you never know when God's going to honor your willingness to stand tall and true to the truth. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.